This message was recorded at Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our goal is to faithfully preach the Word of God for the salvation of sinners, the strengthening of believers, and the glory of God. Please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org and listen for more information at the conclusion of this message. Matthew 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother, Mary, was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife. And did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we ask uh, again this morning for your enabling power. Lord, I ask that you enable me to uh, speak, deliver the message you would have delivered here. I ask that you grant clarity. And I ask that you grant accuracy. And Lord, most of all, um, that you accompany it with power. To change hearts, to move hearts, so that lives are impacted by the truth of your word. I ask that you enable all of us to hear, that is to grasp, to understand the truths that we'll be dealing with this morning. And I ask that you, again, make it effective. Lord, our hearts are sinful hardened still in many ways, um, but Your power knows no bounds. I ask that You do all these things, Lord, for Your glory, for our good. In Jesus' name, Amen. Be seated. Earlier I mentioned um, prayer, Sunday mornings at 9 o'clock. And I wanted to read then, I I ran across something this week, I just wanted to read a quote. So I'm going to do that now because it also, I think, ties in well with what we're going to be talking about uh, in this passage this morning. But this this is uh, this quote that I'm about to read you is is dealing specifically with evangelism and um, 
prayer in evangelism and how prayer relates to preaching the gospel, the gospel uh, so forth. Um, here's, here's part of it, and I'm going I'm to take a couple of different sections here. Uh, the, the writer is J.I. Packer. This is a book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, which I highly recommend. I think there's one copy in this office over here. If that one disappears, um, more will appear. Okay, <laughs> not instantly. <laughs> don't don't uh, don't take me wrong there, but we'll get more. In other words, uh, excellent excellent book. <clears throat> in regard to prayer um, and how it connects to evangelism, he says this now. But I'm 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 also applying it to other areas, which he he does as well. So, for example, when we talk about praying corporately for the uh, for the meeting, which which would be part of the purpose of praying at nine o'clock on Sunday morning, praying for uh, one another, um, so forth. Uh, this this these things still apply, I think. He says of the Lord, it is His way that it is is it is God's way. It is His way regularly to withhold His blessing until His people start to pray. You don't have because you do not ask, James 4.2. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Matthew 7.7. But if you and I are too proud or lazy to ask, we need not expect to receive. This is the universal rule in evangelism as elsewhere. God will make us pray before He blesses our labors in order that we may constantly learn afresh that we depend on God for everything. Another, another quote. Speaking of the, uh, our, the evangelistic commission, the commission that we have to preach the gospel, again, as, as prayer uh, is related, he says, it is a commission... Not only to preach, but also to pray. Not only to talk to men about God, but also to talk to God about men. Preaching and prayer must go together. Our evangelism will not be according to knowledge, nor will it be blessed until they do. We are to preach because without knowledge of the gospel, no man can be saved. We are to pray because only the Sovereign Holy Spirit in us and in men's hearts can make our preaching effective to men's salvation. And God will not send His Spirit where there is no prayer. Evangelicals are at present busy reforming their methods of evangelistic preaching, and that is good. But it will not lead to evangelistic fruitfulness unless God also reforms our praying and pours out on us a new spirit of supplication for evangelistic work. Prayer. Now, that's just an exhortation to pray. I could say specifically he's talking there in regards to evangelism, but it applies across the board. God um, intends for us to, to be a praying People, I think of Jesus' words in, in, in the temple when he said, uh, when he quoted the Old Testament passage, uh, 
my house is to be a house of prayer. It's interesting, isn't it? Because there's here, especially there in the context of the Old Testament temple, which is where he was, there's so much activity going on in the temple. God ordained activity as well as some that was not. That's why he got a whip and <laughs> drove them out. But there was so much activity he could have pointed to. My house is to be a house of sacrifices. My house is to be a house of burning incense. My house is to be a house of reading and teaching and so forth. Interesting, isn't it, that he says, my house is to be a house of prayer. And if that applied to the Old Testament temple, the building in a geographic spot, Jerusalem, then how much more does it apply to the New Testament temple, God's people. God's house is intended to be a house of prayer. Now, <clears throat> there, again, just an exhortation for all of us, to myself and to all of us, to pray, to be serious uh, and aggressive in our prayers. How does that relate to what we're going to talk about today? Well, one reason I thought it was fitting for what I'm talking about today is because um, this... Uh, experience that we have, the Christian experience, this experience we have with the living God is relational. Now, that's an incredible thing. I was, just, I was just reading. I wish I could quote it. I should have brought it with me. But I was just reading this week a book by Francis Schaeffer where he was talking about how every Christian, uh, and I think he also used the term evangelical, which was at least used to be just kind of a way of saying Christians that believe the Bible, which, you know, real Christians, in other words. Every Christian, he was saying, ought to be excited. Reminded me of uh, Brother Attaway. You know, he said uh, in different words the same thing. You know, just if, if we all really had a grasp on this thing, we, he said we'd all run out in the backyard, throw our hands up, and just, and just yell, you know, scream, and uh, praise God. That's kind of what Francis Schaeffer was saying. Every evangelical Christian ought to be excited. Why? What's the excitement about? Or why should we pray? Why should that be important to a Christian? Because we're talking about being in relationship with the living God. Or we could put it in the terms that Matthew uses here, that God is with us. God is with us. Now think about that for a moment. Imagine, and, and, and again, let's, let's go back for a minute to the context of the Old Covenant and the Old Testament people of Israel. And if you've read the Old Testament, you're, you're familiar, familiar with uh, uh, the, uh, the character of the, uh, of the people of Israel and, and the, uh, the whining and the complaining and the unbelief and, and uh, all of those things that are foreign to us. But uh, <laughs> we identify with those things, don't we? That's why God put them there. <clears throat> so that we, we could see our, ourselves. It's like looking in a mirror. And, uh, and, it, and it provides lessons for us. But if you're familiar with that story, think about uh, what could have been had they really understood what it meant to have God with them. God 
preserving them. God advancing them. Just one case in point is when they initially were to go in and take uh, the land of Canaan. And if, if they had all had the attitude that Joshua and Caleb had, uh, that whole thing would have just been a cinch, wouldn't it? I mean, they'd have gone in, God would have delivered the land over into their hands, and they would not have had to spend 40 more years dying in the wilderness. Because they, they couldn't get a grasp on this concept. God with us. In fact, in one place, um, it's called the contention of Israel. We'll get to that in a moment. So, let me kind of go back again uh, to the beginning here. And I, I want to um, focus in on one passage here this morning. I uh, wanted, wanted all of that read so that, so that uh, you know, we'd get the whole the little narrative again about the birth of Christ. And last week... We, uh, we largely last week we focused in on verse 21. Uh, she'll bring forth a son. You'll call his name Jesus. The Lord saves is what the, the name Jesus means, or God saves. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. He's he's coming. This is this is the Christ. We talked about the last couple of weeks. Jesus is the Christ, the long-awaited anointed one, the Messiah. That's Matthew's whole point in this uh, narrative to to uh, demonstrate that Jesus of Nazareth is the long-awaited Messiah, the Anointed One, the Christ of God. And he gives us an account of the virgin birth, virgin conception, and virgin birth that we talked about last week, so that Jesus was born of a woman, but he did not have a human father. He was not uh, the product of uh, procreation, uh, now, the way that we know it, Joseph was thought to be his father. In a legal sense, he was his father, but he was not his biological father. And, and Matthew, as well as Luke, give us an, an account of that um, so that we know Jesus was born or conceived and born of a virgin. <clears throat> conceived, verse 20, by the Holy Spirit. In fact, twice here, Matthew uses that little phrase, um, by the Holy Spirit, verse 18 and verse 20. This is the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And so we focused in last Sunday on verse 21, His reason for coming, Savior. And He will save His people from their sin. He he has a mission, He has a purpose, uh, which He has fulfilled. It's not a potential thing. You know, he's coming to provide potential salvation. No, Matthew said he's coming to save. He's coming to save his people from their sin. Very, very emphatic, very specific. Now, this morning, I want to focus primarily on verse 23. Now, this is the passage from Isaiah 7:14, uh, prophecy given, uh, the word of the Lord given through the mouth of Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah. 7.14, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, bear a son. Again, we see that fulfilled in Jesus. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. So our focus this morning is going to be on this verse. In fact, we're going to pretty much narrow it down to this one word, Emmanuel, or 
the phrase that Matthew uses to translate it, because this is what the, the, the word, the name, the title, Emmanuel, this is what it means. God with us. So, so here's Matthew's point. This is what he's communicating. Let me go back just for a minute. Uh, verse, uh, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The beginnings, that word genealogy is the term Genesis. The book of the beginnings of Jesus Christ. And then you get down to verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. He's giving us an account of the birth of Jesus Christ. The beginning, the genesis of Jesus Christ. We've got the genealogy there. And His, uh, we called it last week, His miraculous conception and birth. So he's focused in, is the point here. He's focused in on the person of Jesus Christ. And then he makes the point, as we just noted, that he's the Messiah, the long-awaited anointed one. And now he makes the point in verse 23 that he is God with us. God with us. Now, I just want to note a couple of more things here. For us to keep in mind, every part of God's gracious dealing with human beings is born in the heart of God. I, I say that for, the, for this reason, because it, we're, we're prone to think much of ourselves. I, th- I think it would be accurate to say, I know, I know we think we have t- today, if we listen to the psychologists out there, pop psychologists, uh, we would think just the opposite is true, wouldn't we? We've, we've, according to them, we've got a huge problem of lack of self-esteem. That may be true insofar like as they, as they define it. I mean, in other words, you know, People look at themselves and say, you know what, um, I'm worthless, I'm no account or whatever. That, that may be true, but, but, but listen, <laughs> that kind of thinking is self-centered. And what, what we're doing, even though we're, you know, saying I'm no good, I'm no account, blah, 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 we're, 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 we're exalting ourselves because we're focusing all attention on me. In other words, it's all about me, who I am, what I am, and that's the all-important thing. So that's ironic, isn't it? Self-esteem, or just a lack of self-esteem, low self-esteem, is actually the product of pride. Okay. Not a lot of amens there, Brother Carl. <laughs> But but I think if you you know biblically I think that that's true. Lack of self esteem or low self esteem is the, actually the product of pride. So what happens is I'm, I'm simply saying this: we we just simply think in terms of everything's about me. And so so we read the you know the plan of salvation, God's redemptive plan through Scripture, and even if we are um, humble enough to admit, you know what, I'm a sinner. And I need a Savior. If we're not careful, we'll still bring along with that this attitude that 
I'm a sinner and I need a Savior, and therefore God was obligated. Because surely, surely, um, I'm worth saving, right? And if I'm beyond, if I'm beyond help, if I can't help myself, then God has to do something. Because the other option is unthinkable. That is that He would let me perish. That, that I, in other words, that I would actually get what I deserve. That's unthinkable. We were, I was helping church with music one time, and uh, the pastor <clears throat> made the statement that if he didn't go into a lot of detail, he wasn't preaching on Calvinism versus Arminianism or anything like that, you know, free will versus sovereignty. That wasn't his focus. He just made this statement in passing, and he made the statement that if God saved some and left others to perish, that would be unfair. And uh, through the course of about nine months, I mean, there were various statements, you know, made that I didn't agree with or methods that this church used that I didn't agree with. And I was okay. I mean, I wasn't there to, you know what I'm saying, I was just there to, to help them with the music, and that was that. It was temporary. And But that one was hard to let pass without asking a question, you know. He, he, he made that statement. If God just let some... Saved some and let allowed others to perish. That would be unfair. So, after the service, I, I managed to I get him off to the side. I asked him to come off to the side, and I asked him how that would be unfair. And uh, he said, "Well, you know, God saves some and just lets others perish. Uh, you know, that, that wouldn't be fair, obviously. You know." I said, well, let me ask you something. Do you believe that we all deserve hell? And he said, yes, of course. I mean, this is, you know, evangelical preacher. He said, yes, of course. And I said, well, then if, if some people then get what they deserve, how, how is that unfair? But that's the way we tend to think, isn't it? I mean, we... we of course we're worth saving. <clears throat> no. No, we don't deserve salvation. We don't deserve anything from God's hand except His wrath. We don't deserve, or, or say it this way, God doesn't owe us anything. Now, I don't say all that, uh, you know, to depress you or anything like that. It's because I want to drive home this point that any gracious dealing of God with human beings is exactly that. It's gracious in nature. It initiated with Him. And it's not based on anything in us. It's not based on our actions or anything like that. It purely, it is grace flowing from the heart of God. Just God's love. His grace. Not because He owes us anything. It's because He wants to bestow grace upon us. So every gracious encounter with God by us, by human beings, is initiated by God. He works all things. We've noted this many times. God works all things according to His own will and pleasure. So, for example, Psalm 115.3 makes that point. God is in heaven. He does whatever He pleases. Ephesians 1.11 says, In Him we have 
obtain an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Listen close here. God fulfills His own desire. When He does something, that's because He desired to do it. (laughs) When Matthew says about Jesus, you're going to call His name, or the angel says about Jesus, you're going to call His name Jesus, for He will save His people from their sin. Then know this, what's behind that is God's desire. In fact, that's what I want to talk about this morning. The, the desire of God. Specifically, the desire of God to have fellowship with human beings. Now, if you think in terms of that, that helps, I think, in any way, helps me anyway, get a, get a little bit of understanding as to why Schaefer thinks we ought to all be excited. Or why... Brother Attaway thinks that we ought to be excited to the, to the point of spontaneous praise. That God would desire fellowship with people. And we don't have time to go into all this this morning, but, I'm just, but, but when you think about it, put it in this context. God is holy. We are sinners. We deserve His wrath. And yet, He has expressed <laughs> a desire to fellowship, to have relationship with people, human beings. He is by his very nature. Now, let me, let me say this real quick, because I know what I'm doing here. What, what I'm trying to, what I'm trying to do, we're, we're, we're going behind the, the scenes of this passage a little bit. Sort of like reading between the lines, right? You get a letter or something, and somebody's says something and you kind of, you, you, in your mind, you know, mentally, you kind of try to figure out where are they coming from when they, when they wrote this. Um, so you're kind of reading between the lines or, or actually I think maybe a better way to say it would be, we're looking at what's behind this. Here, here's the passage again. Verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And what does Emmanuel mean? God with us. God with us. So, what is manifesting here is fulfillment of God's own desire. Our God is in heaven, the psalmist says. He does whatever He pleases. So, when He says, uh, when, when the Lord says through the angel or, or through the mouth of Isaiah, there's going to be a child born. You're going to call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. What, what we're getting is an expression of the heart of God. That God desires to be with us. If Psalm 115.3 is, is, is true, God does what He pleases, then, then God is pleased to have fellowship with human beings. He's pleased to be in right relationship, to be in relationship with human beings. Now, this to me is, is 
essential to having a, a, a proper grasp of the gospel. Because so often we think of the gospel merely in terms of avoiding punishment. In fact, it's often even presented that way. And I'm thankful that that aspect is there. Thankful. The idea of avoiding punishment um, makes me happy. Okay? <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not trying to downplay that, take anything away from that. But the biblical concept of salvation, when we talk about, we, let's, the way we talk about it today, someone being saved, someone being born again, it's all about reconciliation to God. So being in relationship to God. So it's not just, okay, you got your ticket now, and, and you don't have to worry about hell. Um, you, you've got a, a, a pass, you're assured to go to heaven now. Now you can just go back to your life. Go back to living the way you were living without worries. It's not about that. It's about coming into a relationship. A real relationship. Real interaction between man or, or woman and the living God. And it's not to be thought of in you know, abstract terms like, uh, sometimes we have to, there's necessarily, sometimes we have to make distinctions between uh, positional truths and practical truths. So, so, for example, we might say, you know what, positionally, I'm righteous in the sight of God. Because, not because of any righteousness of my own, but because Christ's righteousness is applied to me. So, positionally, I'm righteous in the sight of God. But, then I would look at my life and, you know, what a mess... I make of things, and I would say, but you know what? Practically speaking, day in and day out, I'm a sinner. So, positionally, I'm righteous, but uh, in practice, I'm a sinner. Sometimes we have to make that distinction so that we understand uh, how things are working. You know, we're we're. That's why we can say, uh, and some abhor this term. I don't know why, but that's why we refer to ourselves sometimes as sinners saved by grace. It makes me think of David, for, or, you know, for example, when he says, my sin is always before me. He's not saying, I'm not saved. He's just saying, I, I am saved by the grace of God, but I'm still, I'm still a sinner. So sometimes we have to make that distinction. But we don't want to do that here and say, you know what? Thanks to the gospel, um, there's some kind of uh, abstract truth out there. Positionally, I'm in relationship with God. And that has no bearing practically on my life. It's, it's just, it's just a, an abstract theological concept from the Bible. Positionally, I'm right with God now. But until I get to glory, essentially nothing changes practically. Now, most of us probably wouldn't say that we probably wouldn't, you know, just make that statement like like that, but we might live it out. We we might live as though our relationship was with God was was just uh, something that's really still in the not yet. And again, I think that's missing 
the essence of biblical salvation. Through Jesus Christ, we, we are brought into a real, living relationship with the living God that has enormous bearing on us practically. Or if Gates used to say, if you swallowed a stick of dynamite, would it change your life? <laughs> it's a lot of power, isn't it, in one stick of dynamite? How much more in the living God? And if He's really in us, with us even, that makes a difference. It makes a difference because of who He is. So, Emmanuel, God with us. Now I'm going to have to move quickly here um, and uh, just over a few things <clears throat> that I want us to see. Let me go back for a moment. To the, to, again, to the old covenant, and just we'll see that this theme is running throughout the Bible. First of all, it starts in the Garden of Eden, because there Adam and Eve have relationship with God. And remember, when they sin, what do they do? They they hide from God, right? Because they hear. The voice of the Lord in the garden. So I mean, there He is. They've, they've actually got relationship. He's with them in a in a real sense. And again, that's what I really want us to grab grab hold of this morning. In a real sense, He's with us. So there ought to be an awareness on our part of His presence. And so, what was lost because of the sin of Adam and Eve? What was lost in the Garden of Eden? Not just the privilege to eat lush fruit and live in a place where the temperature is always perfect. Probably zero humidity. <laughs> okay, that was just a little bit of my interpretation. But not, not just that, the real paradise that was lost is, to use John Milton's term, the real paradise lost was... Relationship with God. That's what they forfeited. That's, that's where the death comes in because they are, they're separated from God at that point. Uh, they were removed from the garden. And so then after that, throughout Israel's history, you begin to see, well, it starts with hints of regaining that. So God appears to Abraham, for example, and he begins to deal with Abraham on a one-on-one basis. He calls Abraham his friend. And he says, look, I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to bless everybody that blesses you. And I'm going to bless all the families of the earth through you, through your seed, through your descendants. And God begins to speak of this reestablishment of relationship with Human beings. Now, no, I'm, I'm giving you a surface sketch here. I mean, we're, we're skipping over a lot of, a lot of God's dealings and, and uh, different characters. But, and, and so then the same is true through Isaac and Jacob, and down the line. And you get to uh, the nation of Israel when, when uh, God brings them out of Egypt. And what does He do? 
When He delivers them from Egypt, well, first He does all the, the miracles, right? Brings the plagues on Egypt. Pours out His wrath on Egypt while protecting and preserving Israel in the midst of all that. And then He brings them out of Egypt. And what does He do? Right off the bat, immediately, He manifests His presence right there in the midst of the congregation. In the form of a cloud by day that was a pillar of fire by night. And you go back and read the Exodus account, and it even says it provided light for the Jews at night, for the children of Israel, and it provided darkness for their enemies. So if you were on the wrong side, it was just, you know, it was, it, it was blocking the light. <laughs> but for the Israelites, it provided light for the camp. And there was a visual manifestation of God's presence. Cloud by day, fire by night. And then He instituted the tabernacle worship. And that's what that was all about. God gave them the tabernacle. So again, they would have something there representing God's very presence in the midst of them. And it was even called the tabernacle of meeting. And Moses would often meet God there. And the sacrifices were done there where um, atonement was made for the sins of the people. That was the meeting place for God and, and man. The tabernacle. In fact, the idea in the word there, tabernacle, is... Uh, it, it just means tent, but it's the idea of dwelling. So, so you say, for example, I'm going to pitch my tent here. It means you're going to, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to dwell there. I'm going to live there. And that's exactly the language that John uses in John one when he says, "The Word became flesh and dwelt among us." The word there is tabernacled. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. That is, God the Word, who was in the beginning with God and was God, became flesh and pitched His tent among us, John says, so that we had a visible manifestation of the presence of God and we beheld His glory. The glory as of the only begotten Son of God. Full of grace and truth. He tabernacled among us. God. God pitched His tent among us. And of course, that typology, the Old Testament tabernacle, was carried over to the temple. Solomon built the temple. Although again, if you go read the account, you will see that he understands, they understand, or at least some understood that there was certain symbolism involved. And that God doesn't really dwell in houses made with hands. But He ordered a house be built for Him and that worship be conducted there, again, to represent His presence among His people because He desired to be among His people. And oftentimes, promises and prophecies were made 
to that end. I will be with you. We read a couple of times in Haggai as we went through Haggai when he was exhorting them to, uh, to continue the, uh, the building of the temple, the rebuilding of the temple rather. He was exhorting them and telling them, I'll be with you. I'll be with you. This very prophecy in, in verse 23 was originally given to King Ahaz in the threat of war. Uh, Ahaz was king of Judah, and he had, he had the, the king of Israel aligned with the king of Syria, and they were threatening to attack Judah. And God sent Isaiah the prophet to speak to Ahaz and, and to basically tell him, I've got it handled. Don't, don't worry. It was, this prophecy was a confirmation or, or a reaffirmation, we could say, a reaffirmation of God's covenant with His people. It was reassurance for them that He would preserve them. And Ahaz was not a good guy. God actually told Isaiah to tell Ahaz, ask for a sign. Ask for a sign. Deep or high, ask for a sign. Nothing's too big. And Ahaz hypocritically said, I'll not test the Lord. And Isaiah said, God's going to give you a sign. The virgin's going to conceive. And bear a son. You'll call his name Emmanuel. God with us. God's very present with, presence with us. This is a reaffirmation of God's covenant with his people. Assurance of preservation. That was the message for Ahaz. Look, you're not, you're not, ultimately you're not, you're not going down in an ultimate sense. Because I'm going to keep you. And I'm going to give you a sign to assure you of that. He's going to keep, preserve his people, and ultimately dwell with them. So, The Bible begins in the Garden of Eden with God dwelling with Adam and Eve. And then because of sin, Adam and Eve were removed from the Garden, which means they were removed from the presence of God. And then all the way through the Bible, you've got these promises and prophecies of this uh, relationship being reestablished. And then we get to the end of the Bible, and we find that it is... Done. Revelation chapter 22, verse 1. He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. And on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. 
and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face. Revelation 22.4 They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light. And they shall reign forever and ever. Chapter 21, he says in verse 22, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. God's very presence among His people. Begins that way in the beginning, it's lost, and then a promise of God coming to dwell with His people, and then we see it regained in the end. Well, how does that happen? How does that come about? Well, that's where Matthew and his narrative comes in. This is where it's accomplished. God created man in His own likeness, in His own image. For fellowship with His Creator. Now, let me be real clear on one thing. It's not because God had a need for fellowship. God, in His very nature, is relational. But He is also, in His very being and nature, totally satisfied in that respect. In the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there is perfect relationship. And nothing lacking there. So it's not like God needed outside relationship. He didn't need a way to manifest His love. Read John 17 and you'll see that there was a love relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit before the world began. So why does He bring us into being and why does He desire fellowship, real relationship with us? And the only answer I know to give you, the only answer I think you can find here in the Scripture is because it pleased Him. In other words, God takes pleasure in fellowshipping with His people. She'll bear a son. You'll call His name Emmanuel. God with us. Why? Because it's God's heart. It's like we saw in the garden. just like we saw among the children of Israel, even though they were constantly running from God, God was constantly giving words of promise, I will be with you. You'll be my people and I'll be your God. Until he gets to the point where he says, I will. You know, they're continually rebelling. And he gets to the point where he says, I will 
Put a new spirit in you. Put my spirit within you. I'm going to take your heart of stone and make it flesh. Make it soft. I'm going to establish a new covenant with you. And then, I'll be your God and you'll be my people. And Jeremiah says, no longer will a man have to turn to his neighbor and say, know the Lord, know the Lord, because they'll all know Him. Why? Because He's with us. He's manifested Himself among us in a very real way in the person of Jesus Christ. So in the Old Testament, you had the tabernacle, the temple, the cloud by day, fire by night, all of these things, types of God's presence. The Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat. Now we have not types, but the substance, the reality. A virgin will conceive. She'll bear a son. You'll call him Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Would you stand, please? This sermon is made available through the ministry of Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our desire is to faithfully proclaim the message of salvation which God has provided in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. For more resources and information, please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org. You may use the links there to contact us or write us at Fillmore Baptist Church, 6304 Highway 80, Princeton, Louisiana, 71067.